think? If I just move my hand, get response from the entire band, because I can start these girls raising sand. If I just move my hand, when I want the brass to play, I just... For the saxes, I do a different way, like... These girls will be up and ready to go. Look at there, I told you so, and I just moved my toe. If I keep twisting my face, get a lot of slapping and rhythm on the bass. Boy, she'll swing all over the place. If I keep twisting my face. Allie, Audio Vision rides again. After a long, unscheduled pause, we now present episode 12 with Ralph Alley, architect, and myself, Clark Yarrington, Frame Residential Design, recorded in May 2021 and released November 2021. What took so long, you may ask? In the previous episode, Ralph and his friends wrote out the magnitude 9.2 Alaska earthquake on March 27, 1964. This time we will hear more details about the immediate aftermath, living without utilities, limited services, martial law, amongst the rubble of ruined and collapsed buildings. Clark, the last time uh, we had a podcast, uh, we had just gone through the 9.2 earthquake in Anchorage. We were trying to pick up all the pieces of what to do without any kind of utility. The three of us, Frank, Dan, and I, who were then roommates in this blue house on the corner of 15th and Old well, uh, we found refuge with Tony and Gene Luth and his son Billy out at Airport Heights. And we had come back down the hill and gotten things cleaned up at the blue house where we lived on 15th. And it was very, very cold, always too cold without any kind of heat in the house. The house started attracting friends of ours. Each of us went with a gal who lived together and the three of them came and after their house was wrecked and stayed there. Frank had a friend named Foot who was there. So there were eight people staying at our rented or leased home. <clears throat> Dan's and my sleeping bags and the three gals, they had two. We had two beds and in one bedroom and I had that jungle room that had bunk beds. And anyway, eight of us slept there and there was this great debate that the three guys were to sleep in the back rooms where it was cold without any heat and the only warmth the three gals would allow sleeping is in front and from out a wood-burning fireplace and that was it. The earthquake was on uh, March 27th and so it was still uh, winter right? It was cold cold at night at least. It was a really cold March too. Uh, it was just past the spring equinox but if ever you have a cold exterior and no heat inside. Inside is always colder than uh, than outside. And we found that. I, in fact, uh, I went outside that Easter morning and we didn't have anything there. And I just kind of stood out in the street trying to get warm. There are no cars, of course. And I think I mentioned this last time here was Easter morning and there weren't flowers there were chocolate or colored eggs or anything. No power, running water, gas, phone, and a makeshift outhouse that we hated but had to use. No inside plumbing. And the earth picked that moment to shake the land and sewer smells just kind of emanated up into this rose up just with the sunrise. And I just thought, damn, happy Easter. Did that really did that really test your resolve? Like, uh, uh, what in the hell am I doing living in a place like this? <laughs> yeah, it 
kid, but there wasn't a thing any of us could do about it. So we stuck. <laughs> we were stuck. They weren't allowing anybody out, anybody in. Uh, we were under martial law. It was just the situation that uh, seemed to be. And it ended up okay, but I I think that one of the things that was amazing. We had, uh, we were, we kept getting these notices on the doors, which would tell us where we could go get water and get food at certain grocery stores. And so what we did was each of us, all eight of us would go down and get as much as we could because there were allotted rationed. We had water jugs piled up in the family room there. And uh, every morning I would go out and boil water it seemed to end up as my job for some reason and I would get up before everybody else because heating water or boiling water on a charcoal broiler is about as slow a device you could use but I would just get a nice batch finished and everybody would just emanate from every door practically and take the water for their coffee fix. So were you still having to go to the office and work during this time, or was all that just uh, called off for the time being? Well, there were no phones, and we couldn't get into town. I could get into that in a, a minute, but because finally there was phone service, but right at this moment we were just stuck, isolated from any communication except amongst ourselves, which is pretty good. It seemed to me that the water that we needed the most with the eight of us there was to wash ourselves rather than to fill our coffee urges <laughs> because we all looked terrible. And every one of us seemed to re accept the fact that that's the way it was going to be. And I kind of concluded uh, this. So this is how marriage looks before breakfast. And <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> but... Anyway, this went on. We kept getting notices on the wall out the door. I would be at the next day, like Monday, I'd be boiling water and people would come into the kitchen there and they would ask me if we they should go to work. And I guess because I was a water boiler that that became my job. <laughs> but it was uh, Tuesday, the same thing happened on uh, Tuesday there was this frantic knocking on the door, and it was my first client's virgin joy. They had come off the mountain to see if their mother was okay, or her mother, and they told me that Joe Jackson from Seattle had gotten access into Alaska, and the first place he went was up to look at their house. They said that, that their house was the only three-dimensional structure that he knew of that ever went through a 9.2 earthquake, and he wanted to check it out thoroughly, and he did. And they said they didn't know what all that meant, because uh, he was quite surprised there wasn't any damage whatsoever. And I said, well, I know what it means, and that's pretty nice. But word did get around town that that house of mine didn't have damage, but a lot of houses didn't. It's just the way people were after the quake. And I think the worst damage was down around the water and the uh, infinite blue clay that the buildings were built on and without proper uh, structural slabs underneath. And, but nobody knew that at that time. Everyone was kind of assessing what they saw rather than what scientifically would happen. And the blue clay did liquefy under the tremendous uh, vibrations that were sustained for minutes uh, 
during that quake. When we talked about this before, I was comparing the earthquake that happened here on November 30th, 2018, and it was a magnitude 7.3. But I was thinking about it later on and going, you know, those two aren't really very much the same. Like, isn't uh, every um, magnitude number like 8 versus 7 versus 6 like 100 times stronger than the... um, so yes. it, it was uh, really like a, a whole nother um, experience altogether. And it's more than just the Richter scale. It is how long it was sustained. And maybe the it's distance it is away. Quake. And there are two loads at every earthquake. And one is the first is the impact load, which, you know, that was a monstrous one. But the resonant load afterwards, how long that goes is destructive as well. You definitely have a lot of accounts from people where they just seemed like it was like the end of uh, everything, you know, the the apocalypse or whatever. And I don't think that they're um, exaggerating it or not being brave enough or whatever. It really was like, uh, you know, all of a sudden you completely like have no um, bearings at all, no terra firma, no um, no expectation for um, you know anything to be the same ever again. I think. Most people approach life with kind of a catastrophic thing in their heads, just hoping that for the best. But it's kind of amazing to watch the differences in attitude with that quake. And we can get in this soon in later podcasts because uh, there was a lot of consternation on how Anchorage should develop and warring as well, kind of the answer your question about going to work on Wednesday. We were all in the house early and I was boiling water and this weird noise happened and it was a phone rang. We couldn't believe it. We were so uh, just kind of surprised by it. And uh, it was Bill Manley who I worked for. And he said he was calling all his employees to come help, but that the office was a mess, total disarray, and he had to get it operational. Of course, Dick Mayo worked for him, and he was staying with us. He was a Seattle architect that just arrived there in Anchorage. I told him that Dick was here with me and we'd come help. And he asked us to come over to his house. He said, uh, you can't get into town, you need passes, and we have to go to a, a Street. There was a checkpoint there. And he said that uh, the military is just guarding everything downtown. And I told him we'd already tried to go to town. And I noticed these, they kind of looked like those soldiers the witch had in the Wizard of Oz, if you, ever you've seen that picture. They all had that look about them. <laughs> and they didn't speak English because we went up to talk to them and they had no idea what we were say- saying. I don't know where they were from. These days, uh, the downtown is almost um, in decline. You know, people are figuring out how to revitalize it. But in 1964, uh, everything was there, right? All the yes. major retail and offices, and uh, there was there was very little outside of downtown. We didn't have big box anything. Spinard was kind of an outpost, and not actually spoken well of. Uh, if you lived in Spinard, people would call it, you live in Spinard, like that. And it was strange how, as time went on in the years after the earthquake, uh, how that was lost because there were areas south of Anchorage that just became more and more acceptable. But downtown Anchorage was it. And uh, the uh, 
people who had the wherewithal uh, mostly lived like on Romic Hill. Uh, well, we can get into that because uh, the expansion of Anchorage is uh, certainly something we can discuss in future podcasts. Romig Hill is actually part of Spinard, but they were in denial about that, no doubt. What was? Romig Hill is part of Spinard. Yeah, but it <laughs> kind of jutted toward the south a little bit, and it had the gorgeous views up there, and there were a lot of nice houses. They were nice. Spinard is a good place to live these days, and um, I, I live in the so-called worst part of Anchorage Mountain View. I remember... Um, I was helping with um, Chris Chai. That's uh, somebody you know. And he he I was do. working on a book about Quonset huts in the in the ninety seven, I think. So I'm um, helping him with research on that. And one of the things I was doing as I was at the library and looking at uh, old copies of the Anchorage Times from the forties on microfilm. It was it was very tedious. But um, I ran into a advertisement in a news Anchorage Times from nineteen forty for lots for sale outside of Anchorage, and the the ones in Spinard were one hundred and twenty five dollars, and Mount, <laughs> and Mount. Mountain View uh, were uh, $175. So I'm thinking that's probably the last time that uh, Mountain View was a more desirable area than Spinard. It almost makes me laugh having dealt with properties from <laughs> from, the, from here, from in Anchorage afterwards, after the quake, later on, and down here in California. I mean, they really, that has become a something like a, having a sense of humor to endure to purchase uh, properties. And I, I told you about the Toll Brother houses in various areas. Uh, and uh, there's this guy, this realtor in Las Vegas, who gives these YouTube uh, demonstrations of tours of them. They're excellent, but, you know, they'll cost over a million dollars for the basic, and then they have all these extras that'll make it two million one or something like that. It is incredible how property is. Yeah, I couldn't have imagined that back in 64, huh? No, couldn't do that. But anyway, we had, we drove, uh, Dick and I went over uh, in my car, which had like a gallon of gas in it. Uh, we could find that. Uh, that was all we were allowed at the time. Bill took us over to the um, A station where we could get a pass and get stamped. They stamped our hands and uh, to get in. And uh, they didn't allow any cars in, in the town. And they'd emptied all the buildings. And uh, we had to walk in. And we walked in the middle of the streets. And there was broken glass everywhere. Bill had already warned us to wear boots and to dress warm and pack a lunch. And we did all of that. And we had to have our IDs with us. So walking down the street, uh, we noticed all of the soldiers standing at every corner and mid block. They had kind of like, oh, I kind of described it a minute ago, but these Oswald Rabbit insulated boots, and which were outsized shoes. For, and they had these kind of fur-lined headwear and rifles. It just wasn't the anchorage that I used to feel free and, and felt great adoration for. It was awful. There were glass shards all over the sidewalks and streets. 
I think the closest thing I can think of that was a little bit like that was about a little more than a year ago when um, the coronavirus started closing everything down. I was walking around downtown one one day and uh, taking some photos. I took a couple of photos of your old office building that day, and it there was nobody there, like like, huh. like nobody at all. The only time I'd ever seen it like that in, in like almost 50 years of living here. Well, it's gruesome to see that in a place that had a lot of vitality just three or four days before. Right. And, of course, there were buildings that uh, had exposed structure, and it was, some of it was bent and broken. Some of it was just sticking out straight. Not every building, but a lot of buildings. And building debris was just piled everywhere in just these huge, chaotic piles, pieces. It was devastating to see, devastating for me to see. And J.C. Penney which was kitty corner across from where I worked, was probably the worst. And these great big tall panels that covered the side side of it had fallen and were just in pieces lying around the structure. And the sad thing is that Bob Hamilton had designed it. And he's a guy who hired me in Seattle and I knew him. And actually, you may remember, I lived in his and Betty's house that he designed down in Westchester Flats. And it really touched home to me to see that. And I was sad for him. Bill uh, Manley, who was with me, said that uh, that men in suits had already darkened his doorstep and they were looking for his whereabouts and they can't be found, Ham and Betty Hamilton. I said, well, did they go somewhere like Tasmania or something? And he says he doesn't know. He said these guys were legal types or an enforcement of some kind. The three-story Lusak Som building, uh, where I worked on the second floor, was concrete. And it had diagonal cracks from every door and window in the concrete panels. And it just was crazed with uh, destruction on the exterior. They fixed it. Yeah, I was going to say it uh, doesn't look like it uh, had that kind of history today. Seems like it's still standing tall. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing what they did to a, a lot of buildings. And, and I've told you that uh, another building that Ham designed for Harry Hill, and it was in a big competition, and they won it, was that seven-story uh, Hill building, which was then bright yellow, and is now the... Um, city building where the mayor's office is yeah and uh i used to know tony is a very close friend and i used to go up there and i always had this trepidation because that building had turned 45 degrees where it was originally built and they did some kind of damming underneath and they flooded it with concrete and turned the building i wish i remembered the whole process it was amazing but the building was put back normal with the block uh, in a short time, and it was an amazing process. But it still does hold that when you know those things about a building, you don't want to go there very often. Yep. Well, we've been uh, gabbing and going off on tangents a little bit for one third of the hour already. So this is the point where we'll insert the first break.
Dear friends, in the center segment of Alley Audio Vision, seeing the mess at his office makes Ralph want to bail out of the firm. He and Dick Mayo take a break from the cleanup and walk a couple blocks over to where Dick had been staying before the quake. First, they retrieve a couple of suitcases from Dick's VW van, which was teetering above a chasm. Then Ralph dares Dick to enter his rooming house, which was semi-intact and pitched at an extreme angle. They deal with all of it with humor and pluck. Well, anyway, we did go inside the Lusak Song building and a lot of ceiling fixtures and debris was all over the lobby floor and we really had to step over that to get to the stairs. And uh, the three of us went up there, down the hall, which was a mess, to the office. And everything had fallen in there. Uh, catalogs, uh, heavy ones, had catapulted off the uh, wall cubbies and were all over the floor. Uh, vertical files had fallen and uh, the files and drawers had opened and uh, folders had fallen out and papers were scattered everywhere. I really hadn't seen a mess as bad as that in my life up to that time, which was, you know, not too many years. I uh, was probably uh, 29 years old, not quite 28. The thing that I saw on top of all of that was, you know, those lead sharpeners that every desk had uh, for drafting pencils. Well, they had somehow come apart and just dumped as anthills piles of dust all over everything. And you know that stuff smears and was on tabletops and floors and on top of papers. There was, I've always had this little guy living in my head that just says things and sometimes I have a hard time turning out, but uh, I can remember one of the things that just popped into there. It was like, Ralph, time to quit here. You know you can. <laughs> I, I had that urge, but I dismissed it. And Bill, it was awfully cold in there. It hadn't had heat and it was ceiling heat that, that they had. It was... Um, I think hot water ceiling heat. And sometimes I found it quite disturbing trying to draft under it because it'd make me sleepy. But there was, I would have really loved to have had that at that time because it was so cold. And I guess uh, Bill Manley couldn't stand it either because he left and told Dick and I to get busy. I don't know if you've ever been confronted with anything like that, but um, Dick and I were very quiet for a while, and finally I said to Dick, let's go eat our sack lunches out in the sun. He says, well, where can we go? And I said, well, why don't we go sit on a certain VW Vans on the sun-facing bumper? And if you remember, Dick escaped down where he was living behind the Denali Theater. He had a room down there, I guess. And his van, which is parked in a parking lot, was one half of it. The front half was over a new graben that was nothing but a sheer clay cliff down and pretty far down. The Denali Theater was at uh, 4th and I think uh, B Street. And so it was kind of at the edge of the whole um, area on the north side of 4th that kind of like fell from yes. uh, uh, up to 20 feet. Yes. So it, anyway, when I mentioned this to Dick, his face just kind of red. He had this kind of pursed pipe-smoking grin. He liked pipes, and uh, he looked at me and says, I'm right behind you. <laughs> and so we, we got our passes in our hands, and 
we walked over to Fourth Avenue, which is extremely familiar with me. It's my life. It's where I lived and worked. And I was just astonished. Uh, I looked west and the Chichaco bar, file building, apartment. It was all racked and wrecked. That wonderful Hofbrau had fallen. And I looked east. And of course, you just mentioned uh, there were deep depressions in the road and the Denali Theater had sunk a whole floor almost. So Dick and I saw the areas cordoned off that said unsafe, no trespassing, and we just decided to bull our necks and stand tall and straight and walk under the ropes and go in. We got in the alley behind the Denali, and that rhymes, but uh, <laughs> I didn't mean that to happen, and we walked to the east. We could see a little bit north the, what was once a parking lot, and Dick's van was out there. And so we went out to where the uh, van was parked and the front half was hanging over that impressive drop. And Bill Manley told us that was called a grabo. And uh, I never had heard that term, but he knew quite a bit about it and explained what it was. Out there, once we got there, there wasn't one out there. All the soldiers, no people, there weren't dogs, cats, anything. So. We sat on the back bumper there. We didn't eat. Finally, I asked Dick what he had in the truck, in his van. And he told me, well, I've got a couple suitcases and a duffel bag. And he says, what I did is I took the middle seat out, so it's just vacant in there. And that's probably one of the reasons it hasn't didn't fall over into the uh, hole. And he said the uh, duffel bag and everything's on the very back seat. But... He said, the thing that is awful about that is the van has side doors and the front door hanging over the hole. He said, after the quake, he looked around to see if he could get the stuff out because he had nothing with him. He said that he tried to see if he could get it, but he said the ground started shaking. So I just I just started to hightail it to your place. He did, and we were on 15th Avenue, as you well know, down there by the water on O Street. And this was uh, behind the Denali Theater, and Dick is a great big, I, I, I don't mean this, he wasn't an ugly person, but he was Frankenstein-like. He, he lumbered, he big-boned, uh, deep voice, uh, had that square build, and he was like that. And I couldn't imagine him running anywhere, but he was did get there pretty quick down at the house. So anyway, we we're looking at the situation. He says, do you know anything about VW Vance? And I said, well, little, I know the engines is back. I once owned a Corvair. And then I remembered that I was really fascinated with the Tucker when it came out. And I just begged my, begged my dad to buy one. And of course, his advice was he was going to wait a couple of years to get so they worked the bugs out. But anyway, Architects always like weird cars. I once asked my dad what was his favorite car, like if he could have any car, which one would it be? And uh, it was a Studebaker Avanti. Yeah, I and that was a Raymond Lloyd design too. Yeah. The Avanti. Yep, nice car. Yes. Anyway, his answer to rear engines, he says uh, something like, is that what it means to you? Like that. And I says, uh, what this rear engine has voiced down there says, does is provide ballast, and that's keeping the van from falling in. Anyway, he told me about the middle being empty and where the suitcases were, and he got into the fact that the only door in was this one over the engine that lifted up, and it's a very long, narrow door. He 
he said that he tried to reach in there over, but he's just too big, couldn't fit, couldn't get in. I told him that I was pretty slim in those days, and I said, do you think I can make it? He said, if you're willing, I'm, I'm heavier. And he says, I could stand on the rear bumper and add more weight and uh, counterbalance your going in. And I looked at him and I says, open sesame. So he did. <laughs> he got unlatched the door and it was up and he climbed up with one movement and put his hand on the rack on top and brought himself up to one uh, to the most right side our right side of the bumper and and stood there so that with the door open and with both of my hands I grabbed the sill that was behind the engine and lifted myself and two feet onto the rear bumper and bent my body in and my chest over the engine and the van just moved like crazy and I we we were statues still until everything stopped. It was amazing. And anyway, if, why don't you, you've got this great voice. Why don't you just kind of read on here and uh, give people a break from listening to me. And maybe you could read the adventure in the back of the van. You got a page number on that? 21, down about a quarter. It says extra strength beyond getting this far in and the next sentence it's down about mm, seven lines regaining gumption you see it no (laughs) get your glasses (laughs) i'll read it a little bit down till you find it so anyway once we stood like that you get so weak and finally we got our gumption back to proceed and uh, both us and the van stabilize and uh, start scooting forward and I lifted my feet off the rear bumper and I got both legs up and I was in a one line and my for my with my upper body and we I started a very slow slither as a snake and I move in I move the van moves and it was like that. Okay, the, do you see the paragraph? Starts with Quake Gods. Oh yeah, I got you now. Okay. Uh, okay. Quake Gods pick right now to shake the land, but those gods been at it since last Friday. The van ride stays and stills. A slow slide stretches my body with arms ahead reaching. My fingers feel and with my hands grab a handle to lift one suitcase over the seat back for inching by inch a push around my side toward the engine cover. Inches accelerate to fast beyond my doing and goes out back and gone. Hear a thud behind while the van moves some. Allie, some steam on, huh? Need this done. I'm unnerved. Oh, you're unnerved, uttered with me inside a hanging van. (laughs) Somewhere between mustering steam after Dick's order and innate fear... My next grabs are a suitcase and a duffel bag. Pull them up and over, push beside a bit back. Each accelerate and vanish. After hearing two thud sounds, hollering, Is that it? From inside the van's hollowness is louder than expected. Yes, scoot your skinny butt on back out here. This whole deal is killing me, comes from the unseen. Though cocked and aimed backward as thoughts go wild about half where I am, where I am hangs over a cliff, Limited vertical space restricts fast slithering in reverse. 
Scoots jiggle the vehicle clear to my slipping over the engine for the backward horizontal launch out the rear end aimed at landing as a vertical on feet as most preferred body parts. Now standing, I can see how the van teeter-totters at the brink. This time, I'm not in it. What'll we do with these? Greets after an accomplished feat. Can't take the bags back through that A place, can we? Look back over there, Dick. That building, the open door, how about looking in there as a bag staging place till we get squared? Think bags will be okay there? Downtown's evacuated is under martial law. See any guards? Cops? Back here there's nothing anywhere. People, dogs, cats, nothing. Just you and me. Ralph, I see that. Where's your gut on my bag safety? Gut says bags are okay. Areas cordoned off as dangerous. Remember, no trespassing. So far, no hassles gunshots. All right, let's go back, Dick mutters, picking up bags. Say, Dick, below. No, not down here, over east. The house resting at an angle, like a 45. Is it the one? One and only. You've got a room or what in there? Furnished room, shared bath. Is the place locked? Is your room? No, no, Ralph. Don't think uh, what I fear you're thinking. What have you in there? Just office clothes, toilet kit, stuff like my address book, couple books I'm reading, extra pair of glasses. Damn, Dick, worth a try. Warmer out here than in Manley's office. We've already done what we didn't dare. If not now, you may not get your things out. You need clothes. Lord knows when you can replace things there. Got toothpaste, stuff like that? Nope, do, do down in the room. Where's the window to it? Oh, God, Ralph, it's around on the other side's middle. Now maybe up, maybe down. Can't know in this goddamn funhouse. Can't see enough uh, east where a good way down the cliff. Graben, as Manly calls it. Graben? Graben. Graben. <laughs> I'm kind of stumbling through this. Okay. That's all right. Let's see. Hey, look over. You're good. Look over west. Over where the Graben caved but slopes down still has snow maybe underground stuff did it i was thinking that maybe there's infrastructure like pipes that prevented it from being a sheer cliff it was somewhat attached underneath which made it just slope like that it was an anomaly it was the only place around there i saw like that shall i keep going uh, with the uh, uh oh, sure. read if you don't mind i don't mind can't kick my boot heel in this crap Unbroken north winds. I've been working at it. Looks crusty to the bottom. Can't get footholds. Dick, think we're up to sliding on our pant seats? Might be fast. Doing uh, that'll do this funhouse justice. Damn, still like slides. At last, some level ground. Ralph wants kind of a drive-in once directly above us. Walking and looking up, the new clay precipice dominates. Can see under the van's half hanging over. Up ahead, Dick's rooming house. The front leans forward. Sloughed yard slopes up to it. Takes a climb and a crouch getting to the door. Dick takes his key, releases the lock. Both push up on the door's bottom and it opens by banging inside. Holding on to the lower door jam, we pull ourselves into a small entry. I do as Dick does, rest back flat against the inclined floor both feet against the front wall just inside and pushing upward where body bends around a corner to get us into a hall. I want to tell you that this is one of the creepiest experiences of my life. 
we get we we get into there. I I I just kind of go on with this, but we get inside and that house just to give you a sense of it. It, it just groans. It, uh, I, and it wasn't anything we were doing. It just kind of has this inherent noise going on like just without us doing anything. And it then on top of that kind of strange noise, every move we made would make it creak. And it was distinctly different. It was like two levels of sound going on as we were on this little mission of ours and it really made things feel uneasy and then why we got into that we bent our bodies and were in this kind of strange hall but you've got to remember that we were virtually kind of lying on the baseboard or our butts were or something because the floor it was it wasn't exactly a 45 degree angle but the floor was tipped on one side and the wall was tipped on the other <laughs> it, was, it was something I'd never been like that or been in a predicament like that. And then suddenly, while we're there, all of a sudden that throaty, deep sound was happening and it released jolts. And we were both, of course, on edge uh, and on baseboards, <laughs> but we just couldn't move and we held our breath and it, we were both paralyzed and we could feel a downward slipping motion of the whole thing that we were in. And I was happy we weren't in the van at that moment. But after a bit, the shaking ends and... So it was then, another uh, aftershock that was happening? Yes, it oh, was. A, it, it kept going for, you know, for weeks, I guess. Uh, I can't Aftershock of the we, aftershock. Yeah, shock of the <laughs> aftershock. And... and and structures like that, if you probably heard it, you've heard buildings squeak, you know, and it from the vibrating or from the resonant load when it's is sustained. It is was just, it, I you can't really write and do it justice because <laughs> with the squeaking and the innate groaning of the house and the uh, everything going on, it was a, a kind of a, a kind of a experience it was pretty uh from an audible standpoint was really frightening but anyway once it was all over dick and i just <clears throat> we just decided to get on with it we put one foot like our left ones on the wall and the other one on a floor that was sloping and we started shuffling a walk down toward the corner to our east and it was very dark. The further we got in, there was no light, no windows, nothing. And the corner, when we got up to it, where the hall went, if we were, if the house was normal, would have gone off to our right, was very dark. Just looking at the uphill hallway, maybe about up 10 feet, maybe a little more, there was daylight streaming uh, real bright from under a door up there. And Dick said that that was where he had a room. Well, you know, I feel like I want to um, ask you at some point, like um, how this experience has maybe uh, informed your uh, house design going forward. But we also, (laughs) 
We also have to like um, slip in another break here. Seems like oh. this self-imposed structure always comes at a weird time. So uh, let's do that and come back and uh, find out what happened. is Alley Audio Vision with Ralph Alley and Clark Yarrington. It took a long time for life to get back to normal post-quake Anchorage 1964, and progress was gradual. Limited electricity was available at Ralph's house a few days afterward, but it took longer to get heat on inside the house. Back to the story in the third segment of our program. I hear Dick... Uh, it's so dark. I hear him kind of rustle out a crouch down to the to between the floor and the wall, and a thump. So I listen. I thought, and and I was right. He placed his back against the floor, and I felt around with my left foot, wondering what was going on. And both his feet were planted firmly against the north wall. So I do exactly as he does. As a little monkey, I've become crawling around stuff and. And I hear and, and I feel him sliding up the hall with his, on his back. So I move up the hall lying right beside him on my back. And we were kind of side by side. And finally we were stretched out. And he says, Ralph, I'm, I'm holding my hand up. Uh, uh, you find it. And he says, uh, take, I've got the room key. You take it and hold on to it. And don't drop the damn thing because we'll never be able to find it. So I took it and I said, wait, wait, let's not move. I, I put it in my parka, which had zippers all over it. And I put it there in my chest pocket. And anyway, then Dick's, he has a real deep, quiet voice. And it came just out in the dark. He says, okay. Now I want you to use my body, climb on it. I said, too sudden, we barely know each other. And he said, that's not funny. No time for anything like that. We're in a hell of a predicament. Get serious, climb, get up over my head, get your backside flat against the sloping floor above, put feet at each shoulder. What? Oh, dick, you must, oh, oh, you mean my feet on your shoulders, not mine, right? Don't do that, Ralph, I beg you. I'm about to put a hand under each foot and push as hard as I can. Stop, don't, you'll hurt yourself. Oh God, you mean your hands under my feet, damn you? Yes. He says, that'll add my arm's length, however up you must get. With your added height stretched above my height and arms, that would, should cover enough floor above for you to reach my door gizmos. Door crack light there will help you see. So anyway, the scene's real joker unleashes strong jolts and shifts. You could feel the solitaire kind of move this house one ag once again. We rode out and our loud gasps were just so huge that we barely could even talk. The shaking goes on and we just stay as we are and uh, till it quits. And finally, he had kind of a gurgly voice. His throat was constricted and he says, uh, once up there, uh, 
take the key, unlock my door. So I unzipped the, my coat pocket and I sat up like an obtuse angle from my waist. I raised the key for to fumble around and feel a connection into the lock. I turned it and the knob and I apply pressure to the bottom of the door and gravity takes charge and the door bangs against something inside, just kind of telling us that the room is open for business. So grabbing a door jam again takes stretching for pulling myself in and I straighten on my feet inside and the spaces between jam furniture helps moving in the small lopsided room at an angle and bracing against one thing or another is required uh, to move around and yelling out into the dark I, I say something like dick tight in here I better just stay alone and he two of us couldn't have done it uh, the space between the furniture was in some places not even there so I asked him if his closet his drawers there and what was ever on the table is that all and he out of the dark he said yes and then I noticed the window and I got to it and I could unlock it I told him that maybe he ought to instead of coming up there he ought to go up back outdoors and see if he can walk up in the snow and it looked like snow it wasn't there was a lot of trees around there and it didn't look like it got direct north wind like where where we slid down where the uh, snow was just nothing but crust it looked like foothold kind of snow and uh, see if you get up to the window and I told him I'll just hand you stuff out here and we'll just find a place up the hill out of the grobbin and uh, take it on up and it was uh, you know, clothes on hangers and uh, that kind of thing, which was kind of kind of separate and not as handy as the other, but uh, uh, doable. And anyway, comes this kind of grumble deep voice from that dark, and it's like, and I just figured that he was right that many. Okay, I'll do that. So I worked around inside, got the window open, and was putting stuff on the sill there uh, for him. And I finally... Uh, uh, heard his voice at the window and said, Boo, would you care for an apple, my dear Ferris? And I said, Dick, you made it through the snow, but you don't look like a snow white fan. He says, I'm not. Both my daughters are. They love my evil queen. And and um, I asked him if he shut and locked the front door. And he says, that doesn't matter anymore. And he says, this place is done in. We got everything out. We found a way up the cliff that Finally, we got his stuff up to that space. It was kind of like a vestibule inside of a back of a building where there was a staircase. We made it uh, that far, and uh, you can go on if you want to read some more. Dick, before Longshore, your bags from this space back to the office, we'd better check for guards out on 4th and D Street and see if Manley's back. Agree. Moving around in cold out here is nicer than being inert in where it's colder. This very moment is coldest I've ever been, Ralph. Can't go work in that place without heat, lights, water, toilets. God, until there's that, I can't help putting that place in order. It's work I'm not hired to do. Don't care about getting fired at this point. Think that through, Dick. We've got to go back and freeze our you-know-whats to walk your things through A Street. Paid drudge without basic comforts is hell, Mr. Ralph. It'll take more than us to get Manly and Mayor operational. Place is devastated, unimaginable havoc in there. 
If Manley has come back, we'll tell him it's too cold up there for working. It is. He didn't stick around. Note that. Lucked out, Ralph. He ain't back. Where can we stash my stuff in here? Look around. Perfect disorder for hiding extraneous stuff. Think your things will get noticed in this chaos? Hell no. In the building's basement, Manley has a storage crib. Be awful downstairs without lights. Maybe messed up like here. Dunno. Key and flashlight are in front desk's top left drawer. Least a stash possibility for whatever we can't walk through the checkpoint and whatever you don't need now. Security will loosen, then after office hours we'll relieve Manley's crib of your stuff stashed there. Let's quick start longshoring what we got from that place. Dick, when you're back, you can change into clean clothes. We'll put little things as toiletries in our pockets. We'll walk as much as we can through sign out at A with Bill. Bill is not back yet, Ralph. Good. On our way out, we'll quick check how screwed up things are in the basement crib. Hate to contradict, we are getting work done. Having fresh clothes and brushing teeth is progress. This next uh, uh, episode here is um, the outdoors and inside, no matter where you are, for days. It's just nothing but cold. And we haven't had any heat or been in heat. And uh, Manly comes back, wants us to come back tomorrow. And so we three, we're ready and we walk the street middles for A Street Station. And Dick chances one suitcase to see if he can get it through, which he needs. And um, we get signed off and out with uh, Mr. Manley's uh, prestige, I guess, whatever he has in order to get us in. He was able to get everything out and our pockets were bulging with stuff like toothbrushes, toothpaste, all that little stuff. And we got in the car and we didn't have a lot of gas, but uh, turned on the heat and it was such a refuge from the day. And I'd stay there and spend the night if fuel wasn't rationed. I've often gotten on thesis in my head about this, but the cult of scarcity rules and I went through World War II like that, and I've had it in my life a, a number of times. And since the quake, there's been few smiles on Dick's face until right now, after donning some clean clothes at the office, and he just seems to be stretched out in the passenger seat on the car. He's got a suitcase on his lap, and it seemed like... Uh, with the heat blasting him from under the dash. It was a convertible I had, as you will know, and it it had one of the great heaters under there that just would keep the bottoms of your body <laughs> uh, really warm. As we approached O Street, Dick pointed. He says, look, there's lights on in the house. And Whoa. at that moment, uh, it was just amazing to see some civilization coming into our lives and so we got out of the car and went to the to the front door and there was a confusion of cooking smells and loud voices and there was a new paper stuck on the wall uh, right by the door and it said uh, uh, well I had a you know a, a car's flashlight I took it out and looked at it and and uh, it mentioned that there was going to be electricity in and on and off but it's all going to be rationed. We'd have periods with it on and periods with it off. Got inside the house uh, and it was warm. And Marion and Helen, uh, Helen was the gal I was going with at the time, were, in the mich- were kind of in the middle of cooking with dish pans, dish and pan lids clinking and clanking. And radio was going loud and 
TV was on in the living room and Frank was half sitting on the sofa's arm bent toward the screen and he has thick glasses and he was moving them back and forth in order to watch the screen and he saw us and he said, Ralph, Ralph, he talks like that. Uh, come, 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 you too, Dick, come see. Uh, Turnigan's tides have flooded buildings on the flats at Girdwood and Portage. They think Alaska's western ed edge dropped two, eight, maybe more feet in the quake. Believe that? Anything about Homer, Frank, like Land's End at the spit? No mention. Hey, tides here are about highest in the world, aren't they? I heard about 40 feet. Whatever. Bay of Fundy is higher, Ralph. Can bank on that. I don't know how high anything is uh, as far as what's high and what's low, but I, we're pretty close to the highest, I guess, in Anchorage. I just suddenly, done on me, says, suppose tides are high down the street on 15th. We're six blocks from the inlet. That's sea level down there. We live straight across the inlet tidal slough. There's only the street between us and it. Uh, no report on Anchorage, but I'll watch for it, Frank says watchful. I guess I'll trust that. But then all of a sudden I couldn't trust it. I'm going down the street. Have a look. Want to come? And Dick says nothing, like starts babbling like, no way I'll come. He says it's too cold. Dinner's pretty quick. In a bit, power will get cut off. No heat, no lights. Then from on, then on, you can just kind of count me out. It just sounded at that moment that Dick's lost his North Adventure luster. It's gone. <laughs> he didn't want any part of being out in the wild. Yeah, enough for one day, maybe. The cold days just kind of pile on, and so do the cold nights. And I don't care how many bed covers you can put on or how many coats you wear. You just don't get warm without heat. Even the shots of electricity we got, they aren't on at night. They just do it in the daytime so people can work. And uh, I woke up the morning after the scare about the high tides, and I was relieved that there wasn't water flowing over the floors in our house and the yard still had the same old snow and the one thing that was really bad was a horrible hurt was in my upper right arm and I went into kitchen boiling water boiling duty and coffee drinkers came in as usual and their upper right arms hurt and their faces looked red and flush and it was a typhoid shots and with arms crippled, Dick and I honor our commitment to Bill Manley. We went back to the office and knee-deep drudge. Manley least scared up some more people to help us. And in the office, there was kind of on-off heat, which was nice. It changed things. Uh, one of the problems was there wasn't anywhere to work on the floor because everything was down there. And we're all on our butts and our knees and trying to pile one pile into a better pile in order to figure out what was what and read what was what. We came home uh, for lunch because there was supposed to be power on, and there was. And I was putting together some hot soup. Dan showed up. And uh, we were sitting there in the family room at the table, and north across town, unmistakable, was that deep-throated rumble moving closer. And all the other noise was just diminished. You couldn't, it just overpowered everything. Suddenly, all that familiar vibration under our floor and just had this huge thunderous decibels it's uh and the room started distorting and we were up and out the door treading atop that rapid jolting tail behind the speeding roar and it started quieting as it went south and then suddenly became silent and 
Unlike last Friday, the shaking and its weight just stopped. We were all still for a few seconds after, and it was pretty intense, and we were interrupted, and, and the power still remains on, but boy, our appetites were off. The uh, office still waited for us to uh, put it back together, and we went back, and we're all sitting on the floor, the whole office, except Roger, uh, who you remember, he had the little tandem airplane that I one time flew to uh, Soldaten and Kenai with, and we slept under the wing. He came in, he says, yeah, the real deep boy, really deep, he says, look, and we kind of all rose up with our eyes above the window level and like a bunch of prairie dogs or something. And we looked down on D Street in the center, all these men huddled in black overcoats, breathing these cold air puffs and their hands in their pocket. And they staring toward the window, the west side of the Lusaxon building. And uh, they're probably looking at the cracks or whatever that interested them. And when they saw us looking down at them, they started waving and smiling. And I don't know if they were amused or what, but Manley comes in and he says, if you haven't noticed, the face among those men is Richard M. Nixon. And we looked down there, gave them all a closer look, and it was, I don't know if you remember Mad Magazine, but they used to put these covers together with, with all these famous faces. And you start looking, so my gosh, half of Washington is standing there. For grueling days after the earthquake on Good Friday, we finally got the office together, and I can personally testify that Manley and Mayer's newly organized office is better than it was in 1964 this late spring than my arrival that first March week in 1959. Well, it's probably a good chance to clear out stuff that you weren't using, and um, uh <laughs> Hopefully when you got those big uh, shelving units tipped back up on the wall, you uh, attached them uh, to something solid this time. Yeah, true. But it is uh, quite an experience there, and uh, we could quit here if you wish. More about Ralph Alley, his life and work, at his website, artechdivisions.com. My website is frame-ak.com. Ralph continues to live in his undisclosed Southern California location and frequently reflects on his 1960s-70s Alaska experiences. This is episode 12 of Alley Audiovision, recorded May 6th, 2021. See you later, dear friends.